You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Good morning. Good morning. You sure look like a fine group of people this morning. Turn to somebody and say, you looking good? You looking good? If there's nobody beside you, turn to yourself and say, I'm looking good. I'm looking good. All right, I'm doing a part three on the book of Ruth. And I want to highly recommend that all of you buy the Passion Translation's um, Joshua Judges and Ruth. It comes in a little separate package, but... uh, it's, um, you know, people sort of question the Passion Translation, but I'll tell you what, I've read the Bible for 55 years and I get so much out of it. I enjoy it. Um, I like steak. I like salad. That's about all I like, I'm thinking about. But I like a wide variety of things and I think uh, it's good to read different translations and uh, viewpoints in the Scripture. But I'm going to talk this morning about um, Ruth's Redeemer. And um, here's what we're doing. We're absorbing Ruth's story. We're not just listening to her story. We're actually also, if you can see yourself in this story, we're listening to our story. We don't just discover who Ruth is or who Naomi is. We discover who we are as we relate to what happened to them. That's one of the purposes for the Bible is to find two people in it, the Lord in us, right? And, um, and it's not just our story and it's not just her story, it's God's story. And we continue to discover who God is and who we are and who we can become as we can Continue to discover what God is really like, and I just love love the Book of Ruth. It's got some very profound, underlying, between the lines, needing to know some Jewish customs, truths in it. I know that's probably pretty convoluted sentence there, but if you parse it, it won't make sense. But if you just don't, you're okay. But <laughs> sorry, Ruth is one part. Of, I call it a trilogy of books in the Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And that's important to know, the background for this story that emerges. And Joshua tells the story of how God enabled Israel to possess the promised land by conquering their enemies. And when I say their enemies, that's a spiritual type of how God enables us to overcome all our own personal enemies, like our sins and passions. Who has a few sins or passions you'd like to conquer this morning? Or our greed, or our fears, our insecurities. And that's one of the things the Bible does. It uses historical episodes to speak prophetic spiritual truths that when you see them, they really can change you. So that's the book of Joshua. And the book of Judges tells a different story. It's historical setting, I think, is very significant for our generation. Our days were much like those days many, many years ago 
respect for and recognition of authority had been lost and sin was rampant. If you can't see that in our generation, you really do need to open your eyes. And the Bible tells us this, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's not a good testimony for a generation. And it says this, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So out of this chaos, out of this confusion emerged almost like a phoenix out of the ashes, this story of Ruth and the reality that in every generation, God has faithful followers and loyal friends, the kind of people that can turn the tide in their generation. Let me ask this question. Do you want to be a faithful friend of the Lord's? Come on. I think the Lord needs more friends. How about you? Yeah. Well, it says to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God's. Now, that doesn't mean of the people of the world, but to embrace the catastrophes, not the catastrophes, but the wickedness of this generation. Now, we need to stand as lights in what has become a rather dark place. And so the book of Ruth lies in stark contrast to the age in which Ruth and Naomi lived. Commentators have described it as being like a brilliant diamond that sparkles against the black backdrop of their era, which was marked by immorality, idolatry, and war. And I'm giving some background because I don't know how many of you have been here for the first two of these, but it's important to understand the background. The book of Ruth speaks to us about love, devotion, loyalty, relationships marked by loving kindness, trauma, restoration, promise, and hope. And it demonstrates that God is present even in our difficult times, that God is working things out for our good even when we don't know or can't see it. That's what faith's for. How many of you understand that's what faith's for? Faith, you don't need when you don't need it. That's a pretty simple statement. But here's what I'm saying. To have faith means you're in a situation where fear and doubt is closing in on you. But the book of Ruth demonstrates that God's present, even when it's tough. Now, both Naomi and Ruth find the favor of God in the midst of the worst heartaches life could bring them. Yet they found the goodness of God in the middle of it. And I was talking with someone this morning. I said, think about this. I was looking at her life. I know some of the things you've been through, she'd been through. And I said, if you can find God in the midst of your heartache, you can find him anywhere. You really can. If you can find God in the midst of your trouble, you can find him anywhere. And he is there, trust me. Maybe not responsible for it, but responsible for you to help you. I like what the Passion Translation's uh, introduction tells us. It reads, Ruth's undying devotion to her mother-in-law. Naomi has gone down in Israel's history as an example of courage and selflessness. I could actually say one of the main points to the entire book is this. If you will set your heart on helping others, God will set his heart on helping you. 
That really is true. The more self-centered we get, the less we're able to identify the goodness of the Lord and see the fulfillment of his promises in our lives. If you don't get anything out of this today, out of the book of Ruth, but that, you got a lot. Ruth, the Gentile from Moab, became a direct ancestor of David and our Lord, Jesus Christ. As we read the book of Ruth, we see these four things, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's say that together. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The least become the greatest. The least become the greatest. Famine leads to harvest time. Famine leads to harvest time. And despair turns into delight. What does despair turn into? It turns into light, into delight when you can recognize the Lord and what's going on in your life. I don't know if many of you have heard about, uh, heard Chuck Swindoll. He's a California, he's a preacher, he's a very good Bible teacher. And I was reading some of the things he wrote. And this is what he wrote. He said, the book was written from Naomi's point of view. Every event related back to her, her husband's and son's death, her daughter's-in-law, her return to Bethlehem, her God, her relative Boaz, her land to sell, and her progeny. Almost without peer in scripture, this story views God through the eyes of a woman. It gives a woman's perspective. And Naomi has been compared to a female Job. She lost everything. Think about this. Home, husband, and sons, and even more than Job did. She lost her livelihood. She joined the ranks of Israel's lowest members, the poor and the widowed. She cried out in her grief and neglected to see the gift that God placed in her life, in her path. And that gift was another woman named Ruth. Ruth embodied loyal love. The book reveals the extent of God's grace. He accepted Ruth into his chosen people and honored her with a role in continuing the family line into which his appointed king, David, and later his son Jesus would be born. So to get the full implications of the book, you really need to read it for yourself. How many of you have read it? Great. How many of you are going to read it? That should be the rest of you. How many of you are daydreaming? That'd be at least 3% according to uh, polls. Anyway, let's reset the stage. At this point in the story, Naomi has lost her family, except for her daughter-in-law, the Moabite Ruth. They've returned to Bethlehem destitute and broken, and it's the time of barley harvest, and Ruth decides to follow the harvesters to see if she could obtain some grain to feed them, to keep them alive. And I've mentioned this before, some of you may not know, according to Israelite law, when a farmer reaped his harvest, he was not to send his workers through the field a second time to pick up the odd stalks of grain that the reapers dropped. They were to be left for the poor who would follow the reapers and glean what grain they could. Ruth went gleaning to gather food for Naomi and herself, and unknown to her, the field in which she happened to glean belonged to a relative of Naomi's late husband, and his name was Boaz. And so there are no coincidences. 
God's at work to arrange and enrich our lives, whether we know it or not. We can even stumble into his providence without even being aware that he's setting us up to benefit us. Let's think about how I got married. I stumbled into a relationship with my wife rather blindly and ignorantly. What does that mean? Well, I knew her for a long time. I didn't recognize who she was. What? Yeah, I didn't realize she was the woman I was supposed to marry. Actually, I was on a trip with about 30 others for three and a half weeks to Europe and hardly spoke to her. And so God was doing his best to arrange my life. And I was doing my best to miss it. But thank the Lord. Here we are. Almost 46 years later. 46 years. I've been married longer than I've not been married. Isn't that something to think about that? God bless my wife. My goodness. Anyway, back to the text. Ruth chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. One day Ruth said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain. Maybe someone will be kind enough to let me gather the grain he leaves behind. So Naomi says, go, my daughter. So Ruth went to the fields to gather the grain the reapers left. It just so happened, we've heard this earlier, that she found herself working at the edges of a field belonging to Boaz of the family of Elimelech. That was Naomi's deceased husband's name. At that moment, Boaz, the owner, came from Bethlehem to watch the harvest. He greeted his harvest, then he noticed Ruth, and Boaz asked his foreman, who is this young woman over there? And they explained that she was Ruth the Moabite who had come back with Naomi. So Boaz walked over to Ruth and said, listen, my daughter, don't leave this field to glean somewhere else. Stay here in my field and follow the young women who work for me. Because I've heard all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I know your story, how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people and a culture that must seem strange to you. May the Lord reward you for your sacrifices and because of what you've done. May you have a full and rich reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to find shelter. So Boaz encouraged Ruth to gather in his fields to make sure she could accumulate enough grain for her and her mother-in-law. He even told the harvesters to take out additional bundles of grain, throw it on the ground for her so she could gather it. So when Ruth returned home and she showed Naomi all she had gotten and that Boaz was the field owner who showed her such mercy and favor, Naomi said to Ruth, the Lord's loving kindness has not left us either through life or through death. Let me read that again, because here we begin to see as Naomi begins to recognize the sovereign hand of God again in her life. The Lord's loving kindness has not left us either through life or through death. That is a very, very bold statement. That is a very clear statement of faith for a woman who has lost both her husband and her children and her hopes. Bold statement. But her heart was beginning to be healed. Then she said, Boaz is closely related to us. He's a kinsman, redeemer of our family. May the Lord greatly bless Boaz. So that's in um, verse 20 there in Ruth chapter 2. 
or three, wherever. If you read it, you'd know. I'll mess with you. A couple of things I want to point out. One of them is about God's sovereignty. Sometimes it's hard to see God's sovereignty. But it's remarkable. It was really God's sovereignty that I ran into the woman I married. And, you know, I tried hard not to marry her, if that makes any sense. Um, (laughs) I know that doesn't make any sense, but, you know, sometimes we need to be healed from things that happened to us in our past so that we can do well at things we need to do in our future, you know. And sometimes the Lord has to get your attention in ways that may be rather uncomfortable. But what he wants to do is heal us. What he wants to do is help us. What he wants to do is posture us for success in this life. He really does. So Naomi's heart began to heal as she recognized God's sovereignty. And some of those sovereign events were, number one, they were, their return to Bethlehem coincided with the beginning of the harvest. Number two was the Jewish custom allowed the poor to gather leftover grain during the harvest. They would have starved to death in Moab without that compassionate Jewish custom. Number three, it says she happened. Somebody say happened. She happened to randomly choose a field that belonged to Naomi's relative Boaz, and he happened to be what's called a kinsman redeemer as a close relative or former husband. So what is a a kinsman redeemer? Because this is a very important part of the story. This was um, an aspect of Jewish culture and it involves both relationship and property rights. And so I'm not going to give a full explanation of how it all works, but I'm going to give you a full enough explanation to get the point I want to make, okay? There's a point. It's coming. Get ready. Kinsman Redeemer. That term is used 10 times in chapters 3 and 4. And it signifies a legal function performed by a near relative. If a widow was childless, a close male relative was empowered to do several things. One was to buy back her property because being a widow, she tended to be impoverished, empowered to buy back her property and redeem her by marrying her. The kinsman redeemer ensured that the widow would not lose her inheritance rights to her property and would provide her with offspring who would inherit that property. In the case of Naomi, she had other near relatives living in Bethlehem who could qualify to be her kinsman redeemer, which means that Boaz was not first in line. There was someone closer. Now, the wonder of it is that Ruth didn't know. She had accidentally stumbled into the one field of the only man in all of Israel willing to both buy Naomi's property and marry Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth both which had the potential to change all their lives in, honestly, we're going to see in a minute, 
in one of the most amazing ways anyone could ever imagine, but could never foresee. So everybody with me so far? Everybody all right? Okay. Is it making sense? Okay. Good, good. In closing? No, I'm stuck. Okay, the plot thickens. It gets a little tricky, but it takes us to the threshing floor, to Boaz's threshing floor. So Naomi says to Ruth, now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. That means put on perfume. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Sounds a little sketchy, doesn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to explain it. I wasn't there. It just is what it is. It's in the Bible. So she goes on. Then it shall be, then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful. How was his heart? It's cheerful. (laughs) He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz was startled and he awoke. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. I guess so. (laughs) Who are you? She says, I'm Ruth, your servant girl. Then she says something sort of strange. Spread the corner of your garment over me, or it's been translated this way. Spread your wings over me because you are a close relative by marriage, one who is my kinsman redeemer. Well, then Boaz said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. So somehow, as strange as all that was, it didn't mean you weren't a virtuous woman there. So that's custom. Then he says, it's true. I'm a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I am. Stay here tonight. I will protect you in the morning. We'll see if he's willing to redeem you. If he does, good, let him. But if he refuses to redeem you, then I promise as surely as the Lord lives, I will. So sleep here until morning. So a little bit of explanation. When Ruth asked Boaz to spread the corner of your garment or spread your wings over me, she was using a figure of speech meaning, please marry me. It's incredible. The woman was asking the man, please Marry me is what she was saying. Ruth was asking Boaz to marry her. Her specific request was for Boaz to cover her. It says the corner of the garment. 
Technically, it was the corner tassels of his garment. Garments of Israelites were decorated or included a tassel at each of four corners, and they represented faithfulness. One of the things the Pharisees did was they make their tassels real long to tell people they're extra, extra, extra faithful and extra, extra, extra righteous. But basically, that was a that was a custom. Um, those tassels meant you stood for and were willing to walk in covenant faithfulness, which is what what Ruth was asking Boaz for a covenant faithfulness to her as a wife, because she knew he was faithful in other ways. She trusted him to be faithful to the covenant to her as a husband and faithful to Naomi to secure her property rights. Both of those would be secured through marriage and would assure the welfare and future for both Naomi, Ruth, and actually Boaz as well. So here's what happened. Boaz invited 10 witnesses to observe authenticate and complete the process of who would ultimately secure Naomi's property and redeem Ruth in marriage. So he invites 10 witnesses. Think about the 10 commandments. We're going to see why in a minute. So Boaz goes to the near, near redeemer. That's the person closer than he was to the, to, uh, the right of redeeming um, Ruth and Naomi. And so here's what Boaz says to him. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead. Therefore, it will be your responsibility to father a child in order to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. At this, the kinsman redeemer balked and said, in that case, I'm not able. Say, I'm not able. I'm not able. He didn't say, I won't. He didn't say, I can't. He said, I'm not able because he represents something else prophetically that we need to see. He says, I'm not able to redeem it for myself without risking my own inheritance. Take my option of redemption for yourself for I can't do it. So here's a picture we begin to get. The nearer kinsman redeemer who had first right of refusal initially agreed to buy Naomi's property until he realized it also obligated him to marry Ruth and have children to continue Naomi's family line and secure her family's inheritance rights. The near redeemer was more than willing to buy the property, but he did not want to share it with any potential children he and Ruth might have. Ruth's son would inherit the property and the near redeemer in his selfish self-centered way of thinking, would lose the price he paid for it. He'd lose the land to Ruth heir. He wanted the land, but he didn't love Ruth. He didn't want to share anything with the son they might have together. So he was willing to share the property. He just didn't love Ruth. Somebody say he didn't love Ruth. Didn't love Ruth. He wanted the land but he didn't want her and he did not want her child. He said, I'm not able to redeem it. He did not say, I will not. He said, I cannot. And here's what I see in that. 
The near redeemer is a picture of the law. And the Ten Commandments are the picture of the body of the commandments of righteousness. So we have two pictures. We have this so-called redeemer and we have the law. The embodiment of what it is to be righteous. And the law, in a sense, is a nearer kinsman to us. But the law does not have the power to redeem us. The law, it's not that the law will not. It's not that the Ten Commandments will not. The commandments, the image, the picture of righteousness does not have the power to change our lives. The law can redeem nothing. Like the nearer kinsman who did not love Ruth, the law does not impart love. The law does not change us. The law does not redeem us. Here's what it does. It reveals righteousness, and when we see the righteousness of God through those commandments, it highlights our unrighteousness. It brings us to the point of despair if you are trying to live in accordance with the law to lay hold of a right standing with God. It does not have the power. It took a person. Jesus Christ himself to satisfy the requirements of the law on our behalf and through his death, And his shed blood redeem us completely. A couple of verses. Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us. The minute we set out to justify ourselves by obedience to the law, we enter into a curse that we cannot break. Are you listening? The minute we set out to justify ourselves by obedience to the law, we enter into a curse we cannot break. Only Jesus can do it. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become, in essence, us as cursed with our curse. Romans 8, verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk after the flesh, but after the spirit. And one more verse, Galatians 2.16. For we know that no one receives God's perfect righteousness as a reward for keeping the law. Anybody want me to read that again? For we know, do you? For we know that no one receives God's perfect righteousness as a reward for keeping the law, but only by the faith of Jesus, the Messiah. His faithfulness has saved us. Do you know that's what it is to be a believer? You believe that his faithfulness His work, his act has saved us. And by that faith in him, we have received God's perfect righteousness. Now we know that God accepts no one by keeping 
religious laws. Ruth found a new identity in being joined to Boaz. We have a new identity in being joined to Christ Jesus by faith. Paul said this, my old, in Galatians 2.20, my old identity has been co-crucified with Christ and no longer lives. Can you hear that? Your old identity is dead. Let me put it another way. Your old identity is dead. According to the Bible, according to the gospel, Paul said, my old identity has been co-crucified with Christ and no longer lives. And now the essence of this new life is no longer mine for the anointed one lives his life through me. We live in union as one. My new life is empowered by the faith of the son of God who loves me so much that he gave himself for me, dispensing his life into mine. I was talking with a couple of guys the other night about the book of Ruth and one of them said, in essence, you know, we look back and we see that Ruth marries Boaz and then they have a child and then their family line continues and eventually, not too far down the road, another child is born named David and then further down the road, another child is born and what is his name? Jesus. See, we look back and we say, isn't that marvelous? But they had no clue that that's what they were doing. Do you know what Ruth and Naomi and Boaz were doing? The right thing. The next thing God showed them they should do. They had no idea. Boaz didn't say, I'm going to marry Ruth and we're going to have kids And then in so long, the savior of the universe is going to be born as one of my future offspring. Who who wouldn't marry the right person if you knew all that? But he didn't know. You know what he knew? I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do the godly thing. I'm going to do the thing the Lord wants me to do. So I wrote this. Naomi and Ruth did not know that the choices they made to love one another and pursue one another's benefit would result in being part of the messianic lineage. Ruth became the great-great-grandmother of David. Jesus came out of their union, their seed, their marriage. How could they know? They didn't. In hindsight, we know and marvel. And we understand the glory of this grand narrative, of this story. All they knew was to do the right thing, to serve the Lord with gladness, to overcome their bitterness, to help each other live better and love better. But the point is, none of us knows the great goodness that may follow our godly choices or the great harm we might bring on others through our own selfish and evil decisions. Who's listening? 
Can we choose to live for others' benefit? Kim, why don't, why don't you come up? I'm just going to ask these questions. Can you choose to live for someone else's benefit this morning? Can we choose to live for another generation? Perhaps one we will never see or know. And yet we can influence generations for good and for the mysterious, literal, ever-present kingdom of our God. But maybe it's not, can we choose, but will we? Will you choose? Will you make that choice? This is way more than just raising a hand for Jesus. This is deciding on a lifestyle. One of the old ideas is, would you plant a tree, never live long enough to sit under its shade? Who wants to live that way? Who wants to make that choice this morning? been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.